Hey, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark Gagne. I'm here with Trevor Clifford. How are you feeling, Trevor? Um, I feel all right. I feel like a hamster in a warm cage. How are you feeling? <laughs> I feel like Mad Max with a learner's permit. Ooh. <laughs> Trying to parallel park like a uh, Frankenstein Mustang. <laughs> they don't have cars. to worry about parking in Mad Max. I think the I think the streets are pretty clear. <laughs> <laughs> he had to get his learner's permit at some point. Yeah, you know, the true. first movie, things there's some order. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what's up for today? <laughs> uh yeah. So anyways, for this week I've come up with a new game. I mean it's probably gonna be shit, but mm. uh I call it Well the books reports Styles are shit too, no- so yeah, I mean, it's, it fits. <laughs> I call it Styles Styles from Nowhere. Okay. You know, I do the Carl Pilkington thing where I start with the pun and then try and work out an idea from there. <laughs> uh, so I've got six books here in front of me. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up to a random page and read three or four, five, six sentences. Mm-hmm. And you're going to try and guess the author. And if you're if you're really good, you can try and guess the book, too. Okay. So, you know, randomness is the key here. Like, you might get lucky. I might land on a character's name or okay. like a plot point. And what about, slightly. have you selected books that you think I've, or you know I've read, or you think that I have, uh, yeah. More, greater than 50% chance that you've read them. Okay. So, if, if you haven't read the exact book, you're familiar with the author. Okay. Um, but yeah, you might get lucky. It might be impossible, but I figure let's try it anyways, and... I guess the point of the game is to talk about the writing styles of different authors and what gives them their distinct voice. Right. So I apologize ahead of time if it's impossible, but yeah, yeah, it might be impossible, but you, you, it's a kind of a landmine. Like there's different things that you could land on that would be like really obvious. Like if you start, if you start reading like a thing about like a single Japanese man cooking spaghetti, then I'm just going (laughs) to be. (laughs) So, um, I think we can shoot, for like the success rate of a power play in hockey, which is like on average, like 20% successful, you know? Okay. So like, uh, actually the relationship between like the probability and the real results of power plays is kind of cool. I'm, I'm like a hockey nerd and this is like a, it's a dumb guy thing to have an epiphany over, but I always thought it was interesting how like, okay. A, It'll you know, probably be the uh, same rate of success as plot or not. Because like plot or yeah. not is usually <laughs> definitely in favor of the person who is writing, not the person who's guessing. Do <laughs> you know you know what I mean when I say power play though? It's a no, I don't know anything. Okay, it's when one one player uh, commits a penalty or whatever, so he has to go to the box for two minutes. So it's five on four. Mm-hmm. So one team is basically at like eighty percent strength compared to the other. Right. Like four four out of five or whatever, and you know, given a large enough sample, the league average success. Of, of killing the penalty and not getting scored on is actually like usually around 80% too. So it's kind of weird how it lines up that way. Interesting. It's like, it's one of those dumb guy things where you're like, yo, if you like flip a coin enough times, like you'll end up <laughs> with 50, 50 split. Like yeah. <laughs> mind blowing. Mind blowing. Um, anyways, uh, let's, yeah, let's try this. Let's try this dumb game out. All right. I have some alternate titles here. I, I went with styles from nowhere, but, uh, guess that author pretty fucking simple <laughs> or, um, Prosetta Stone, maybe. Ooh, Prosetta yeah. Stone. Guess <laughs> that author. <laughs> All right, first one. All right. Okay. Um, page twenty-nine. He, he was very fond of flying fish, as they were his principal friends on the ocean. He was sorry for the birds, especially the small, delicate, dark terns that were always flying and looking and almost never finding. And he thought the birds have a harder life than we do, except for the robber birds and the heavy, strong ones. Why did they make birds so delicate and fine as those sea swallows when the ocean can be so cruel? She is kind and very beautiful, but she can be so cruel and it comes so suddenly and such birds that fly dipping and hunting with their small, sad voices are made too delicately for the sea. He always thought of the sea as la mar, which is what people call her in Spanish when they love her. Sometimes those who love her say bad things of her, but they are always said as though she were a woman. Huh. I like. I feel like this is like a really good game. First of all, I feel like maybe one of the rules could be like I have to like 
call out to like stop you when like I think I have a guess. Like okay, you have to okay. keep going. But we'll we'll do that. <laughs> we'll work out the rules later. Um, okay. I I feel like the themes of that follow like Hemingway, but I don't know if he would write about like the frailty of birds. Hmm. Um, but it's almost Final like answer. He would definitely write about the ocean and then like compare it to women and stuff like that because Hemingway is Hemingway. But um, yeah, it is my final answer, but only because I don't have any other guesses, but I don't think it's him. That, dude, you you actually nailed it. It's I, I was reading uh, from The Old Man, The Sea. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like Hemingway, you know, I don't know if that did it. That sample was like. No, but that was a good. That was good because it was. I was like, I don't know if Hemingway would write about like a bird being frail, but he would definitely yeah. compare the ocean to a woman and like throw, yeah. throw like some other language, like some Spanish in there and stuff like that. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, he was known for his spare, like as few as words as necessary style right. prose. You know, That's what I was stories. looking for when I was thinking of it. I was thinking this is like too. I almost thought it was like too complex for Hemingway. Yeah, but I guess. Also, you spilled the beans, dude. You didn't let me guess from what book it was. I was going to guess oh. Old Man in the Sea. Ah, shit. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this game uh, is shit. Dude, stealing your bonus points. Um, but yeah, right, it's all one like for one. Some, yeah, I was doing some research on that. And he called, he referred to his style as like the iceberg theory or the theory of omission. Right. Where like the facts float above the water while the supporting structure and symbolism operate out of sight. Yeah, that's a Kerouac. There's a Kerouac quote, too, where he says, I don't know. I'll, I don't know what the words will be, but when I find them, they'll be simple. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Book two. Book two. I'm flipping. I'm landing. Page 112. Night quickly shut in. But to my extreme wonder, I found that the cottagers had a means of prolonging light by the use of tapers and was delighted to find that the setting of the sun did not put an end to their pleasure, I ex to, the, to the pleasure I experienced in watching my human neighbors. In the evening, the young girl and her companion were employed in various occupations which I did not understand. And the old man again took up the instrument which produced the divine sounds that had enchanted me in the morning. So soon as he had finished, the youth began not to play, but to utter sounds that were monotonous and neither resembling the harmony of the old man's instrument nor the songs of the birds. I since found that he read aloud, but at that time I knew nothing of the science of words or letters. Damn, I feel like that was a, that was a really lucky like strike that I just had there. I feel like, I don't know. I'm supposed to know this of, one. <laughs> no, I, no, no, I, it's still hard, but I feel like that was pretty representative of like the book. Okay. Well, that, what's really weird about the only context clue I could pick up is that it's like a first-person narrative, but they said, like, the humans. So, like, it's like a first-person narrative from, like, not something not human. Um, but I have no freaking clue. I don't know, like, Watership Down or, like, something, like, weird where it's, like, from, like, the perspective of an animal. But um, I have no I have no guess. Maybe, like... Okay. Didn't Jack London write that book about dogs? But that's like in the wild, like Alaska. So yeah. I, I'm going to pass <laughs> so this, on this one. I have no guess. Okay. So this was actually Frankenstein, Mary Shelley. Oh, so it's from the now? perspective yeah. of Frankenstein, the humans. Yeah. 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 It's mm. when he's hiding out and kind of observing them. Right. Um, so for her style, I would say she's more known. I don't know so much about style, but more for like subject matter and themes. Mm -hmm. And with Frankenstein, it's like, you know, alienation and dread and yeah. thought-provoking kind of stuff um i've seen her work described as politicized romanticism interesting so like yeah the self is at the center you know it's but it's not not everything and she kind of rebelled against modern romanticism yeah um and please don't ask me what that means i'm just posing <laughs> like i'm just saying that. uh as an intellectual that's what i think yes absolutely <laughs> All right, ready for the next one? I am. That's good. Okay, uh, number three. Let's go to let's go to higher page one one seventy three. Uh, okay, this all looks interesting. A hungry outlaw will always be fed by one of the others who has food, and if times are lean all around, a foraging party will hit a supermarket and steal everything they can carry. Few clerks will try to stop a dangerous hoodlum rushing out the door with two hams and three quarts of milk. 
the outlaws are not apologetic about stealing food, even though it goes against their pride. They prefer to think that they don't have to, but whenever they do, they aren't sneaky. While one is gathering hams or steaks, another will create a disturbance to draw the clerks. A third will fill a rucksack full of cans and vegetables on the other side of the store. And then they will all flee at the same time through different exits. There is nothing difficult about it. All it takes is gall, a threatening appearance, and a surly disregard for whatever the neighbors might think. As for the police, by the time they reach the scene of the crime, the food is already being cooked 20 blocks away. Hmm. Damn, that's cool. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like the theme fits a clockwork orange, but like that the but the way that a clockwork orange is written is like has all that weird slang that you would be stumbling over. Yeah. So I don't think it's a clockwork orange, but it, it does sound like a scene from it. <laughs> um huh. A bunch of thieves stealing stuff from a store. Um, the cops can't get after them. Oh, okay. If I if I kept reading, re- reading, Jesus Christ. If I kept reading a few sentences, it might give it away. Okay, read a few more. Let's see if I. Let, this right. is, I'm asking for my lifeline from the audience. <laughs> the outlaws are not articulate when it comes to their strengths and weaknesses of the world they function in, but their instincts are finely honed. They have learned from experience that some crimes are likely to be punished and some aren't. A hell's angel who wants to make a long distance call, for instance, will usually go to a payphone. Okay, well, yeah, this is like Hunter S. Thompson, then, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least I know that. So, yeah, yeah. Hunter S. Thompson, right, hell's angel. Yeah, half good a half point. point. For point. That. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, yeah, his style is, of course, the Gonzo. Yeah, which I've been meaning where... ever since I did um, Joan Didion. I've been. You, I think you, I think I mentioned to you, I've been trying to get into more like nonfiction and some of the gonzo stuff. So well, I haven't I mean, read, I read half a, yeah, I read half a page of this and it sounds awesome. Yeah. Uh, I've never, I haven't read this. I just ha- had it for a while. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the gonzo journalism is like, you know, the writer throws himself into the story. Into the experience. And, yeah. yeah. Participates and, you know, possibly shapes the narrative. Some might uh, say that that w- a little bit of on the road was, is sort of like that. Like it's yeah. kind of like a chronic, like some of it, it's definitely fiction, but there's also sort of like the narrator as observer. Yeah. Uh, so I guess this started or that, co- that term was coined when he was like facing really urgent deadlines. Uh, I don't know with what publication, but I think what he did was he was just so like worried. He just submitted his whole notebook, like all of his notebooks instead of just like a polished product. Mm-hmm. And they were like, Oh wow, this is this manic, <laughs> you know, styles. Awesome. And then, you know, he got paired with Ralph Steadman for part of it and the rest is history. Yeah. Okay. So that, uh, one and a half out of three. <laughs> okay. Not too bad. <laughs> All right, next one. Uh, I'll give you a clue. This is a big hardcover. Okay. So we're going to go to a high page here. Page 322. Oh, we got some italics here. This should be good. Uh, You know that's bullshit. You thought you saw a man in the barn, but when you put the light on the guy, he turned out to be nothing but a piece of busted farm equipment. Now you think there's a man in your tub, but what looks like his head is just the shower head, and what looks like his arm is nothing but your long-handled back scrubber stuck through the grab handle on the wall. The rattling sound you heard was either a draft or just in your head. He closed his eyes, opened them again, and stared at the shower curtain with its stupid plastic flowers, the kind of shower curtain only an ex-wife could love. Now that he was fully awake, reality reasserted itself, just the shower head, just the grab handle with the back scrubber stuck through it. He was an idiot, a hungover idiot the worst kind. He, the shower curtain rattled again. It rattled because what he had wanted to believe was his back scrubber now grew shadowy fingers and reached out to touch the plastic. The shower head turned and seemed to stare at him through the translucent curtain. The newspaper fell from Hoskins' relaxing fingers and landed on the tiles with a soft flap. Hmm. Okay. Um, I feel like I got some context clues. Maybe you kind of like you definitely put my like mind in a certain direction because some of the only large hardcovers that you would own would be Stephen King. Um, <laughs> but that's because I know about you. But also, he talks about like being hungover, like the worst kind of idiot. And also, this is like a sort of I think it is Stephen King. It's written in his like style. I don't really know what what um, 
what book it is, but it's definitely like, you know, the reference to being hungover in there is definitely like Stephen King and then like something in your shower, like coming alive. Also that, yeah. that line about the ex-wife is like, also <laughs> seems very Stephen King. Am I right? Or am I being a complete idiot? <laughs> yeah, no, no, you got it. So you got a guest for the book. Um, the only context clue I have for it, again, I'm stealing from the fact that you have like a hardcover of it. It's got to be like under the dome or, um, yeah, I don't know a newer King book, but I don't, maybe you have an older one that's hardcover. I don't know. Okay. Uh, so I'm actually reading from the outsider, one of the more recent ones. Okay. Last year. Stephen King, the outsider. I haven't read that one yet. 2018. Oh, wait, no. Is the outsider yeah, the outsider is the one about like the like the doppelganger, right? I I don't know what it's about. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I you haven't read it yet? It. No, no, I bought it cuz it was on like super discount at this Yeah, time. you know what? I read that book. Um I have read that book. I read it when I was on a cruise, my first family cruise. Um Yeah. <laughs> and uh Do you remember the name Hoskins? Yeah. Hoskins, yeah. Um, but I, re- I, I burned through the, what I did was I planned to go on that cruise and I said, I'm going to burn through the newest King book because I put it on a Kindle. Oh yeah. And once you, once you get like a book like that on the Kindle, it's like a thousand pages is like an afterthought. Like you just go through <laughs> it so fast. That, that's one of the craziest things about that. I actually read like a good quote. I, I can't remember. I don't remember who it was from. I think it was like from Susan Sontag or someone like really epic, but they were basically saying like the Kindle kind of like you lose your sense of where you are in a book, which is actually like a really interesting physical sensation. Yeah. Um, because do you, I mean, do you keep the, uh, the like tracker at the bottom of the screen though? Or do you pay attention to like the percentage? Yeah, I do keep the tracker at the bottom of the screen. Um, it would be interesting to turn that off, but yeah, I, I mean, I do feel that if you put like a thousand page book on the Kindle, it's, it just goes so quickly. Yeah. Okay, that was that was good. So you're doing better than I expected. Already better than, or yeah, better than Power Play. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, second to last, a uh, penultimate, right? Penultimate, um, yeah. Good use of penultimate. Okay. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, page one twelve. It seemed to him that as he sat there, the yellow day contemplated him drowsily, like a prone and somnolent yellow cat. Then he read again. He turned the pages in steady progression, though now and then he would seem to linger upon one page, one line, perhaps one word. He would not look up then. He would not move, apparently arrested and held immobile by a single word which had perhaps not yet impacted, his whole being suspended by the single trivial combination of letters in quiet and sunny space, so that hanging motionless and without physical weight, he seemed to watch the slow flowing of time beneath him, thinking, all I wanted was peace, thinking, she ought not to start it praying over me. Hmm. I, 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 all, like, I was so lost. I was like crazy, like had no guess until the last few things that you said. You said like she ought not and stuff like that. So I'm just going to take a shot in the dark and say Faulkner. God damn it. <laughs> okay. Um, that was, that was really good. So that was, uh, you got to, you know, the book. I, it's really going to be hard to know the book, but, um, <laughs> Light in August? Seriously. <laughs> Did I get it right? That's incredible. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, he's talking about the light and stuff. That's my only guess. And also, the light in August is about um, like a woman trying to track him down, right? Yeah. yeah. Damn, dude. Dude, That's I'm good. crushing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of pressure when it's my <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah. How to the master of, uh, what is this game called again? <laughs> My, uh, styles from nowhere styles from nowhere well they're not exactly from nowhere to be honest i feel like you could make it a lot hard like if you had read from some of the books that you've brought to the podcast like i wouldn't know like oh baba Koek or yeah. something i'd be like what? yeah I, I wanted to kind of it's i can't exactly believe t-ball but. that that <laughs> thing that you just selected though is very representative of light in august like like the only reason why i like i thought that because it was like because he's describing the light and stuff which isn't the whole book no (laughs) damn you're just getting lucky with the these random page flips yeah okay uh today is my day yeah so faulkner was experimental with his style like with things like cadence and tempo and obviously the stream of consciousness which we probably didn't touch on there 
The only reason, I guess, Faulkner was because of the ought, she ought not. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, last one. Okay. Page. Page 68. 68. A sort of transaction went on between them in which she was on one side and life was on another. And she was always trying to get the better of it as it was of her. And sometimes they parlayed when she sat alone. There were, she remembered, great reconciliation scenes, but for the most part, oddly enough, she must admit that she felt this thing that she called life terrible, hostile, and quick to pounce on you if you gave it a chance. There were, there were eternal problems, suffering, death, the poor. There was always a woman dying of cancer even here. And yet she had said to all these children, you shall go through with it. To eight people she had relentlessly said that, and the bill for the greenhouse would be 50 pounds. For that reason, knowing what was before them, love and ambition and being wretched alone in dreary places. She had often the feeling, why must they grow up and lose it all? And then she said to herself, brandishing her sword at life, nonsense, they will be perfectly happy. And here she was, she reflected, feeling life rather sinister again, making Minta marry Paul Rayleigh, because whatever she might feel about her own transaction, she had had experiences which need not happen to everyone. She did not name them to herself. She was driven on too quickly, she knew, almost as if it were an escape for her too, to say that people must marry, people must have children. This is a really weird crossover because I don't think that this, I don't think that the book I'm about to guess is the book, but it's really interesting to just take it out, like take something out of context and it could be another book. But if this is the book, I'm going to freak out, but um, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go author and book at the same time. Okay. Okay. Is that Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro? No. Okay. Good. Now, I'm almost glad that I missed that, because if I did get it, I would be like, I would go buy a lottery ticket or something. Like, I'm really freaking out. But what's interesting yeah. is, I mean, I don't know if you know about the book Never Let Me Go, but it's like a, it's, first of all, the book that you just read from is British, right? Because mm -hmm. it says something yes. costs something in pounds. Yeah. Um, but Never Let Me Go is a, is a, Ishiguro is a Japanese British novelist. And it's funny that a lot of the stuff that you said in there applies to that book. It's a near future book about how people are raised for donating their organs. But, um, is he, uh, the remains of the day? Yeah. That remains of the day. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's what I know him for. So what book was that? Okay. Um, so I, yeah, I'm sorry to have done this, but I, I just, I set you up for failure here oh, because shit. I read from the I read from the book that I'm doing my report on this week, actually. Dude, imagine so if it had cool. imagine if it had been never let me go. <laughs> if you had guessed that. <laughs> we have to pause for a little bit and recollect ourselves. Um, but I thought it would be cool to lead into my uh, shitty report by giving an example of the writing style before providing like any context whatsoever. Right. Um, and so I wanted to do this right after Faulkner because my author this week is also known for the stream of consciousness style, mm -hmm. but in a, a much different way, at least if you ask me, Okay. if you ask anyone else <laughs> in the know. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that stream of consciousness style a little more first, because we didn't really get to touch on it too much yeah. with the section that I read from Faulkner. Like the term, it makes me think of like Proust, you know, like letting his own thoughts unfold, like, mm -hmm not really those of a character like with with him it's way more like memoir style it's like stream of consciousness from the interior right and like faulkner is a little different right it's like you know i'll let the narrator's thoughts flow and kind of see where it goes yeah i would say with proust it's almost like it's very it's sort of stream of consciousness but also like somehow very intentional whereas Faulkner I feel like you can feel almost like a raw draft like somewhere in there you can feel yeah. that it's like okay like there's like work rolling down a hill right now yeah yeah um so yeah for those two it's it's kind of like that and then when I think of you know James Joyce and also Virginia Woolf, who's my author for this week, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a stream of consciousness, but it's it's somewhat more than that. Like, I mean, excuse the it's a, it's a fucking awful metaphor, but you know, with their sort of writing style, it's more like a river of consciousness. Ooh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're <laughs> ooh a river uh, of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. You get it? You, do you I, get it? I get it. They're both they're both water, flowing <laughs> water. Anyways, um, the river, this river, you know, it's 
it's fed from different sources. It branches off into, into streams and there's some eddying currents and wave pools, et cetera. It's, it's like uh, fucking whitewater rafting, you know, you're <laughs> juggling the thoughts of multiple characters. I didn't Usually know like I, you're you're teaching me something because I haven't read I haven't really read much Virginia Woolf, but I didn't know that she was known for that. Yeah, um, so she kind of deals with with that sort of thing, like multiple consciousnesses, and you know everything everything flows, and some things require like a second read, and I guess the technical term for this is uh, multiple focalization. Mm-hmm. So she she did that a lot. And uh, so, you know, like normally I would do some reading during my lunch break, you know, just sort of multitask and like, you know, eat, read while you're taking bites of food or whatever. Like, do you do that? You read during their like lunch breaks at work and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, mean, I have. Like, yeah, with this book that I brought today, like it just wasn't happening. You know, I, it like commanded my full attention. I like, couldn't like balance any other thoughts or actions. It's kind of like. Or, you know, or else there was just zero comprehension, you know. Um, I realized, like, one day I just, like, wasted a third or, like, a half of my lunch break without eating anything. Uh, <laughs> so, so the book I brought this week is Wolf's 1927 novel, To the Lighthouse. Probably to her the most lighthouse. famous. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've, I've, seen, I've seen accurately described before as psychological poetry. And that kind of means like next to nothing takes place in, in, in it, like outside of the character's thoughts. Um, but first, you know, I want to talk a little more about the author, Virginia Woolf. She was born Adeline Virginia Stephen in 1882. Uh, her parents were from London. They'd both been married before. So they, you know, they had, she had seven total siblings and step siblings. Hmm. That must have been pretty and, rare for that time. Like remarried parents in eighteen. Yeah, to have, have step siblings, like a big mm-hmm. family like that. Yeah, um, I would imagine so. Um, so her mother died when she was thirteen, and mm. Virginia she she suffered a mental breakdown from that, and it was it was her first and what was to be like in you know, a long history with mental health struggles. Um, so she had a very very kind of spotty formal education growing up, just due to the shitty traditions back then um but she you know she was a big time reader she had access to her father's library which inspired her to write you know from a very early age mm-hmm. um and her father so her father died when she was 22 so she lost both of her parents young and wow. you know, there were a lot of other deaths in the family um were they were they like wealthy at all like did they leave behind anything for her to live on or was it like okay you're 22 and like you're done <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. I think, I think they were sort of middle class or, you know, Mm. they, they were sort of well to do. Mm. Um, but in, so in 1912, she married, I mean, I might be completely wrong about that, but, uh, anyways, in 1912, she married Leonard Wolf and together they started like a publication and journalism business, which eventually became the Hogarth press in 1922. Okay. Um, and it seems like a really unique sort of thing, but like because of this, her most famous works, which are uh, Jacob's Room, Mrs. Dalloway, this this book to the Lighthouse, um, A Room of One's Own, like those were all basically self-published. Yeah, which is that's pretty cool, um, because you know because she's so famous and also like a tragic figure, almost every step of her life has been overly analyzed. And, you know, doing research for this was almost overwhelming with the amount of info and how it had been categorized all across the different houses she lived in, all the different residences and how they defined the eras of her life. And, you know, I've just but I've discovered that reading her works kind of makes you more interested in her as a person. I thought it's really cool, like when an author can do that. I think like we, we come across that a lot with with some of the authors we talk about. Yeah, we've actually talked about how later on in the podcast, we're probably going to have to get more into talking about actual books than the author that we, (laughs) it's like, I've talked about Virginia Woolf before, so now we'll do another (laughs) novel by her and I'll talk about the actual book. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So now I can talk about the actual book. So To the Lighthouse came out in 1927. 
it centers on the Ramsey family and their summertime visits to the Isle of Skye in Scotland in um, two separate days in 1910 and 1920. It's interesting. Like I said before, yeah, not much happens in this book, like plot wise. You know, it's about, it's really about two days that are 10 years apart. So yeah. the Ramsey family, um, you know, they have a litter of kids. They have a summer home. There's a lighthouse on a small island nearby that one of the kids wants to visit right from the beginning of the book. So so that's how it sets up. Mrs. Like the kid asks, can we go to the lighthouse? Mrs. Ramsey says, you know, sure, my dearest son, like maybe we can go tomorrow. And then Mr. Ramsey is basically like, nah, nah, kid, it's it's gonna rain. Don't nah. don't get his hopes up like that. Yeah. And from there, you know, that that small disagreement or and how they handle things. You know, it's like an emotional bomb went off and you're thrown in right into their heads and, you know, tension and the guilt and the love and the caring, the mm. annoyances, thinking about things from 10,000 different angles and, you know, self-contradiction and pride and, you know, the whole gamut of human nature on display there. And like the beginning 40 pages of the book are so cool. It's, you know, you have, almost have no idea what's going on because you're just you're thrown into their heads and into their lives. And, you know, she basically, the way I was thinking about it, she basically writes like parkour, you know, um, her sentences are nested with different viewpoints and thoughts and, you know, reading, it's like a little puzzle requires your full faculties, mm -hmm. but you know, it's a rewarding, rewarding experience. Like, do you like that when it's like, you know, difficult to decipher sometimes? Yeah. Like, I mean, definitely. Like, yeah, that, that's like one of the big, um, you know, I think, um, I've, I've never been good at math, like at all, like whatsoever. I basically just give up when anything has to do with math. But I think uh, DFW, David Foster Wallace wrote about like how math is like really satisfying because things like click in your head. And I kind of feel the same way with like emotional, like motivations for authors and stuff like that. Like once something like kind of like when, when I can like kind of connect it to something and like think about what they were thinking about, I'm like, it's so satisfying. Yeah. Nice. Um, so anyway, like Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, they're the main characters pretty much, but they're never named. And then they sort of become like representatives of the male and female perspective in this book. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're also representative of Wolf's, her parents. Like this book is somewhat biographical, like her parents, her family, they spent summers near a lighthouse in St. Ives, Cornwall, which is the southwest of the UK. Yep. Um, so I mean right there it's the, the connection like so you know the dysfunction and the tension of the large family is kind of like a snapshot of her life and i've seen people describe it as this her writing this book as her you know exercising her demons hmm. with, with you know, her family life so mr ramsey he's a philosophy professor so you know he's supposed to be this brilliant mind but he has his shortcomings like he has a strong need for validation and praise and he has a very strong personality. He can rub people in the wrong way. And so Mrs. Ramsey, you know, she's a very strong personality too, a strong person. Um, she's very described as very beautiful. She's able to, you know, instinctually provide what the people around her need with her personality. And she, she's sort of, she's sort of like a Rebecca De Winter. Um, like from, from the, Rebecca. Yeah. From yeah, the but without, yeah. Without the sinister undertones though, you know, <laughs> But it's sort of like that, you know, he's rational and blunt and cold. She's warm so, and sort of, you know, an idealist a little bit. I mean, you only see that in small moments, but it's on display right at the beginning, you know, when their son asks them, asks to take a trip to the lighthouse. But anyways, you know, they're two halves of the same whole. They complement each other. And when we're in their thoughts, you know, they criticize each other in their ways, but ultimately, you know, they're very much in love too. So... You know, these interactions and the single day when they are split on how to manage their son's request is the whole first part of the book. Hmm. Um, and without giving much away, the second section is very brief, focuses on like a transition in the family. And it also, the second section is like a bridge to, you know, 10 years down the road. So the, the second, you, section, like the second section is like, uh, compare like page numbers, like the first one is like uh, most of the book. First section is like, 120 150 pages is the first section the mm -hmm. second little bridge is like 
15 pages maybe okay and then the book's like uh 220 so okay yeah something like that but so like the third section is 10 years later they're back at the summer house the family structure is completely changed and you know they eventually do get to the lighthouse Hmm. Um, but as you probably know from experience i mean a lot of people will relate to this with things like that like the interest you have as a person, like your interest in doing something or, or other things like that, it basically works like the opposite of compound interest with money. Like, <laughs> you know, there's a rare window for experiences to have that magical effect. Yeah. You know, it's like the, there's a time, uh, there's a window, a uh, window before your life like forces you or maybe not forces you, but asks you politely to be jaded and cynical. Yeah, I felt that way when I... Um, I visited our friend Brett in Japan and when I was there, I was like in this giant like store. Um, there's like a section of Tokyo called Akihabara, I think that's like, but it's like where all the manga is and like all the video games and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, I was in this giant store that was like full of every Japanese action figure you could possibly imagine, like Dragon Ball Z and like, there was like some Akira stuff there, but just like all these like crazy, like Gundams and stuff. And I was like, if I was younger, I would be losing my mind, but I like, I didn't buy anything. I literally was just like, yeah, that that was like cool. Um, and it was like a really interesting magic is gone. Yeah. Yeah. The magic is gone. So like, yeah, eventually, you know, they make it to the lighthouse but they just should have gone 10 years earlier. Um, but I mean, it's more, it's less about the plot, more about like a character study. Um, it's just a really, really great book though. I mean, she's a fantastic author. And I, I mean, this was the first thing I've ever read by her. I didn't know that much about her style. I also wasn't aware of the, you know, her stream of consciousness style, but uh, it's an incredible book. And I mean, yeah, that's that's all I have. Yeah, that wow. sounds awesome. I, I really like the idea of the structure. Have you ever seen or heard of a of a movie called Embrace of the Serpent? No, that sounds really familiar, though. It's this awesome movie that was came out in like 2016 or something like that, or maybe 2015. And um, it's all in black and white. And it's the structure is pretty similar, where basically like there was like an ancient explorer, like exploring a region of a river for like, like he was like mapping it for the first time. And then the other like parallel story in the movie is uh, like a modern, well, not modern, but like a 1950s like photographer retracing his steps, like the original like map maker maker's steps through like this. I think it's like in the Amazon rainforest or something. Yeah. And it's just awesome like to see the effect of like you basically like with your knowledge of the first storyline, like how the route was developed and then you see the guy like go through it and you're like, oh my God, like it's just like so crazy like that whole concept of returning after time is is really yeah. powerful yeah that's nice and like that that second section of this book that bridge it's basically like a uh you know prolonged exposure of just a shot of like the house and how things are you know falling apart and how someone's struggling to keep it um to keep the place nice you know and and like a time things deteriorating yeah, yeah, time lapse. That's what I was looking for. Um, and yeah, that, so that's all I have. But um, the title of the book, it's really stupid, but it just made me think of that um, that famous Howard Dean speech. You know, the Vermont governor who's running for president in 2004. <laughs> to the White House? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That crazy We're going noise. to Washington, D.C. to take back the lighthouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the lighthouse. Um, yeah, really stupid, but great book. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I should, you know, Virginia Woolf is one of those people where it's just like, I think I think I told you before, there's like a Proust quote where he says, um, you know, like there's, I'm approximating the quote, but it's basically like all great novels, you kind of like any reader sometimes like pretentiously thinks that you, you know what they're about until you read yeah. them. And that's why a great novel is great because you had no idea what it was about. Yeah. Um, and I'm feeling the same True. thing for Virginia Woolf. Like right now, like in your head, like when someone says Virginia Woolf, first of all, I don't even think of the 20s. I think of like someone like in a frilly dress in like a tin type photograph or something like that, Yeah, <laughs> which is awful. And then, you know, and like so and then I guess my now expectations you know. are like way off. So, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's what, uh, that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Inform even each other, (laughs) inform each other and then maybe inform some other people too. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, cool. Well, is it my turn? Yeah. All right. So mine, I can't even do like a good transition into mine because mine's sort of like a complete 180 um, to to almost kind of what we've been reporting in this podcast, but not a 180 to like the kind of stuff that we usually read. Uh, I think I mentioned. You told me you told me this was a page turner. It was it's an insane page turner. It's a 300. It's a 260 something page book that I read in one week, 276 pages. And I read it in one week. Um, so Art Garfunkel, yeah, Art Art Garfunkel style. Um, (laughs) he, I I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast that you know, sometimes we like to take a break, like sometimes I like to take a break from trying to read like some sort of like fancy literature or like some kind of book or something like that. So, this is definitely one of those times where I was just sort of fed up with like every book that I was reading. Especially within the context of the podcast, I always want to bring something like smart or new or like whatever. And this time I was totally ready to escape. So my book is from 1973 and it is Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke. Have you read this book? No, I've only read 2001. Okay, yeah. Um, I've actually read a lot of Arthur C. Clarke, but I haven't read 2001. I've read uh, a book of his called Childhood's End, and I also have his short story collection, Expedition to Earth. Um, But the the first thing, I mean, I I do want to talk about Rendezvous with Rama, the book, but as our normal theme, we haven't talked about Arthur C. Clarke yet, so we're going to have to talk about him a little bit. But I think he perfectly follows the theme that we've mentioned on the podcast before of like of when you're reading someone who that you you like, whether it's true or not, you can read people and like trust them, you know? Yeah. So I feel like for me, Arthur C. Clarke does operate on that like mode of trust, because the truth about Arthur Arthur Clarke is that he is like a legitimate scientist. Like he, you know. I I think the only anecdote I know was didn't he assist in something with like satellite orbits? Yeah, so I'm gonna get to that, like but that. yeah, during okay, World okay. War during World War Two, he was part of like, um, for, well, first of all, he's British and he was part of like the RAF for like basically developing like geosynchronous like location in satellites. So like the idea that we can like have Google Maps is in part because of Arthur C. Clarke. um so that like that whole expertise and like his background as a legitimate scientist kind of like because i'm a layman like i mentioned like i don't know anything about math i don't know anything about science so when i'm reading his science fiction i can understand that like some of the concepts he's bringing forth might be futurist or like science fiction in nature but there's definitely like science behind it like he's the type of person who who wants to sort of like discuss those um, concepts in a fantasy setting and rendezvous with Rama has to be like one of the best examples of that. So uh, just to kind of briefly summarize his life, there's a lot to go through, but uh, you know, he's born Arthur C. Clarke. First of all, he's Sir Arthur Charles Clarke, which means that he was knighted in England. Um, And he was born in December 1917 he he um, lived until March 2008 so he died when he was 90 years old he's a British science fiction writer a science writer and futurist which is a very important term that I'm going to talk about like a little bit like talking about his books he's an inventor also an undersea explorer and a television series host so he like he appeared on tv He's probably most famous for having co-written the script, but also the book behind 2001 Space Odyssey was Stanley Kubrick. So he was nominated for an Academy Award for like best screenplay for 2001. So he's basically someone who really crosses the bridge between legitimate academia, but also like the entertainment world. Um, I don't want to go over his whole biography, but we did mention too, like during the Second World War, in the Royal Air Force, the RAF, he was a radar specialist and involved in the early warning radar defense system, which contributed to their success during the Battle of Britain. I don't know about the Battle of Britain, but he was, you know, from an early age, 
you know, he was involved with like astronomical societies. Um, he was a lifelong proponent of space travel. When he was a teenager, he joined the British Interplanetary Society. So like this guy likes space, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> um, and not only like space, but like strove to understand it and had, you know, some legitimate, I think he was an inventor, had some patents and stuff and had to do with some stuff in the development of space travel and satellites. Another thing that's like really fascinating about him, like I said, in the introductory sentence of his Wikipedia thing, in his later life, he was an undersea explorer. He wrote several books based on um, his deep sea explorations because from 1956 until his death in 2008, and this has nothing to do with Rendezvous with Rama, has nothing to do with the writing career that I'm going to talk about. But from 1956 until his death in 2008, he lived... Uh, in Sri Lanka, which is a an island off the coast of India, and he was just mm -hmm. deep sea diving there for like thirty years. <laughs> um, actually, more close to forty years. So that that that's to a, me is a, really fascinating. That's a lot more accessible than space, that's right? Similar kind yeah. of. Uh, yeah, I know. think I think there might even be some sort of you know kind of link there with like, well, he's not gonna go to space, but he can explore like something that you know a lot of people will tell you that you know space is uh, the, like the deep ocean is as unexplored as yeah. <laughs> as deep space. Um, but he did a lot of fascinating things in the later part of his life. Like he discovered things off the coast of Sri Lanka that then like made you know diving sites popular for tourists and. Um, he was living it up out there. They gave him like an honorary citizenship and um, just a really fascinating person overall. But now I want like now that you have that context of, you know, this person who's obviously brilliant um, and and likes to explore. Put another layer on top of that, because he's also he basically like my impression of him is that, you know, like we have read like a lot of books, we've seen like a lot of movies and we've kind of we've delved really deep into like the art of storytelling. And like when you're talking about someone like Virginia Woolf or somebody, you know, who's a little bit deeper into the art of storytelling, they might be more advanced, but I would say that with all of that background knowledge and, and how trusted Arthur C. Clarke is as a scientist and stuff like that, he knows the basic elements of storytelling that will get you engaged. So basically, like, you know, he wrote scientific papers and stuff, but a lot of his novels, like 2001 A Space Odyssey or the, the book that I'm going to talk about today, it's a scientific concept that he kind of takes the basic kind of almost like a three-act structure or like, you know, beginning, middle, end with engaging characters. And he presents those ideas to you with a story on top, which, which, he, which he was good at. Um, so this guy was good at a lot of things, but... I want to talk about Rendezvous with Rama. Um, this book is really fun. It's really crazy. I would say that it definitely accomplished my my goal of escaping for a little while because I can say that it's been many years since a book made me jump and this book made me jump, <laughs> which is crazy. Like uh, the tension that he built into the world and everything and the kind of science, pseudoscience and like letting a layman like me understand the stakes of the science is is really amazing so can you talk about what did that or is it going to spoil the story there is a little bit of like i'm gonna not do too many spoilers and that might spoil the story a little bit but um let's just say let me talk about rama first like what is rama okay. so basically um the story begins like most like a lot of classic um you know, sci-fi novels, almost like the novel The Sparrow that I've talked about before. It's basically cut through the bull in the beginning and basically just say that there's like, you know, this this story is set in the in the 2130s, so it's like the far future. Um, and there's a there's um, like a a group of scientists who find a like a foreign object that's coming towards the solar system, like our solar system. So that's how like every science fiction thing begins, right? Oh my God, this yeah. thing is coming towards us. <laughs> so the thing that's really interesting about Rama, what is Rama? Um, it's named Rama as a reference and he goes over this in the book, but it's basically, there's nothing too significant about that. It's just basically they worked their way through all the ancient Greek mythology. So they decided to go with Rama, which is uh, like part of like the 
Indian kind of mythology and like the god Vishnu and stuff like that. So what Rama is, is a giant, um, obviously intelligently made structure that's coming towards the solar system. And it's in the shape of a cylinder. And it's like the size of a planet. So it's like basically like a cylinder that's the size of a planet that's rapidly spinning through the universe and it's coming towards our solar system. So the significance of all of that background that I said about Arthur Clarke is that basically he's just presenting um, an idea, which I actually learned is a liter in my research for this, I learned that there's a literary device called the big dumb object, <laughs> which in, in the discussion, I'll read from Wikipedia in the discussion of science fiction, a big dumb object or BDO is a mysterious object, usually of extraterrestrial or unknown origin in a story, which generates intense sense of wonder by its mere existence. So in 2001, A Space Odyssey, that would be, you know, the the um, like the giant like monolith tablet that like the monkeys yeah. don't understand. And, you know, that or whole thing. Basilisk or something. Yeah, whatever it's called. So um, monolith. so the the big dumb object in Rendezvous with Rama is Rama, which is a 50 kilometer long uh, kilometer long cylinder. And it's detected entering our solar system. And. Basically, what Arthur Clarke is doing is kind of presenting you with a space theory that is among scientists and like space theorists of basically saying, if there was a cylinder large enough and spinning fast enough, there would be artificial gravity inside of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I just want to mention, I said something terribly wrong. A basilisk is like a lizard creature and is not even close to it. <laughs> is monolith not pillar. a monolith uh, tablet um, <laughs> yeah before i get dragged right. before you get dragged yeah out there in the public sphere but anyway you know uh rendezvous with rama is is one of the cornerstones of arthur clark's books he it won the nebula award it won the hugo award for best novel in 1974 so it's a very it's a very um kind of award-winning book one of the one of the main pieces of fiction that he wrote um but the thing that's so fascinating about it and the thing that actually made me jump and stuff like that is that he's so good at storytelling that he can really make you sort of um, understand this concept. And then also, like, it bends your perception of, like, you know, how lonely it would be to go into Rama, like, for instance, you know with the, like, centrifugal... And I'm going to use so many bad scientific terms that are going to make no sense, but with like the sort of centrifugal force inside of this giant theoretical space station, you know, like the gravity is like um, along the walls of the, of the spacecraft, but the way that you enter it is through the middle where there is no gravity, like in the center. So it's like, as you approach the like edges of this cylindrical world is where gravity becomes like more of an issue. And the space mm -hmm. explorers kind of like have to deal with that. There's also um, in the center of Rama, there's a strip of water called the cylindrical sea, which is basically like you could theoretically maintain an entire ocean like along like. So like when you're looking, when you're on the horizon of that ocean or like when you're on like the cliff that goes into the ocean, you can also see it like above your head. Oh, so this is, I mean, it's, it's Halo. <laughs> it is Halo. Yeah, there is, there mean, is elements Halo, of Halo. Halo is it. Halo is it. Yeah, basically. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of really fascinating writing that he does about how like being an astronaut in that situation, you basically have to have the self-discipline to orient your mind towards whatever the given situation is yeah. um so i want to kind of read a quick i'm only going to read a few quick paragraphs but you'll see how um how cool his writing is and basically how mind-bending it is i'm just going to cut off at a certain point because it can kind of go for a while here but um, okay, i'm gonna i'm gonna guess what book you're talking about okay oh yeah okay <laughs> um so at this point in the in the novel, just to give some slight context, the the astronauts have entered Rama and basically without giving too many spoilers away, Rama is like when they first enter it, it's completely dark inside and they basically theorize that it's a completely dead like space station. Basically, um, mm -hmm. they don't find any life inside of it and they're kind of just going forward being like we have to study this thing they also like a cool thing about rendezvous with rama too is that it also has like some practical limitations like he explains that it's going to go in and out of our solar system and towards the sun like at a certain 
like it basically has a time limit so everything that they do in the book is like has this tension of like you know wherever they see it's for the first and last time because mm-hmm. you know there's like a lot of stuff going on but um without giving too much away this is when the lights come on in rama so in previously it was complete blackness and they were going around with flashlights and now this is when the lights turn on so who or what had switched on the lights of rama by the most sensitive test that man could apply to this this world was sterile but now something was happening that could not be explained by the action of natural forces there not might not be life here But there could be consciousness, awareness. Robots might be waking up after a sleep of eons. Perhaps this outburst of light was an unprogrammed random spasm, a last dying gasp of machines that were responding wildly to the warmth of a new sun and would soon lapse again into into questions. This time forever. I don't even know what that word means. Okay, continuing. Yet Captain Norton could not believe such a simple explanation. Bits of the jigsaw puzzle were beginning to fall into place, though many were still missing. The absence of all signs of wear, for example, and the feeling of newness as if Rama had just been created. These thoughts might have inspired fear, even terror. Somehow, though, they did nothing of the sort. On the contrary, Norton felt a sense of exhilaration, almost of delight. There was far more here to discover than they had ever dared to hope. Wait, he said to himself, until the Rama committee hears about this. Then, with calm determination, he opened his eyes again and began a careful inventory of everything he saw. First, he had to establish some kind of reference system. He was looking at the largest enclosed space ever seen by man, and he needed a mental map to find his way around it. The feeble gravity was little help, for with an effort of will, he could switch up and down in any direction he pleased. But some directions were psychologically dangerous. Whenever his mind skirted these, he had to vector it hastily away. Safest of all was to imagine that he was at the bowl-shaped bottom of a gigantic well, 16 kilometers wide and 50 deep. The advantage of this image was that there could no be no danger of falling further. Nevertheless, it had some serious defects. Defects. He could predi- pretend that the scattered towns and cities and the differently colored and textured areas were all securely fixed to the towering walls. The various complex structures that could be seen hanging from the dome overhead were perhaps no more disconcerting than the pendant candelabra in some great concert hall on Earth. What was quite unacceptable was the cylindrical sea. There it was, halfway up the well shaft. A band of water wrapped completely around it with no visible means of support. There could be no doubt that it was water. It was a vivid blue flecked with brilliant sparkles from the few remaining ice flows, but a vertical sea forming a complete circle 20 kilometers up in the sky was such an unsettling phenomenon that after a while he began to seek an alternative. So basically the book just goes on and on like that with different sort of like scientific concepts of like, holy shit, it would be so crazy to like be (laughs) inside of this thing. And like, and that's the thing that like his past and like what you even vaguely know about him is like, it's probably like most, like some of it is fantasy. Some of it is like crazy and you're just like, wow, that's crazy. But then some of it is like, I guess it's theoretically possible. Like this dude was like, really obsessed with that stuff so <laughs> so he started with theory yeah yeah he's like real, like seems like trustworthy and like and it's just like you know basically it's an entire like 300 page book of like what if there was this giant spinning cylinder and you were inside of it and <laughs> aliens had created it and you're just like holy shit and like sometimes it like see like because he's so good at explaining things so clearly you're sort of like like if you're someone who's like scared of heights or like weirded out by like roller coasters and stuff like that, you'd be like, holy shit, it'd be like so hard to be an astronaut. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention about this book, which I thought is really cool is, and it, and it also says in the beginning of his Wikipedia, which I think is a really clear way to say it is, you know, Clark was a science writer who was both an avid popularizer of space travel and a futurist of uncanny ability. So what does a futurist mean? It basically means, you know, someone who scientists or social scientists who has a specialty in futurology or the attempt to systematically explore predictions and possibilities about the future. And um, there's just so much cool stuff like this book was published in 1973, but he'll throw out weird concepts in there that you're like, that's cool. Like he would predict certain things like there's a there, like one of the um political committee members back on um on the moon actually uh in this novel there's like humans on several worlds but one of the committee members it like he drops in this thing where it's like he was so old-fashioned that he still had a collection of actual books 
<laughs> you know? And it's like, yeah. he wrote that in 1973. Like there wasn't fucking iPhones and stuff. Like there wasn't yeah. like the Kindle. And, um, you know, it, it's like a really interesting sort of thing. Like there's like a, there's a sequence in Rama where they discover like some things that might have been agricultural farms and the astronauts are like, but farming is like a niche thing on earth that only hipsters do, <laughs> you know? Did they, did they have books on vinyl back in the day? When did that start? Like audiobooks? Audi- audiobooks. I'm sure they, they start did. with cassettes. I'm sure that they did. I'm sure that they did. I mean, it might it, you would have had to have like 20 vinyls, but there was yeah. some sort of because they also <laughs> had comedy, or... they had comedy shows on vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Um but another like another thing that I want to bring up about this book cuz I think it's like it's sort of funny, but it's also quirky like reading in 2019, but there's also some I won't, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not willing to call it misogyny, but I, I, I am willing to call it like male fantasy, where he'll like drop things in this book where like, okay, so like Captain Norton is the commander of the Endeavor, which is the spaceship that is nearest to Rama, so they get the opportunity to go like into Rama, and it's like he has like little like stupid chapters where it's like. And that, you know, and Norton had two families and two wives, one on Mars and one on Earth, because like in the future, we're so sexually, you know, advanced that you could just have multiple partners, which like, it's just funny because like, it's like part male fantasy, but part like, you know, um, like I'll read a quick paragraph at the beginning of chapter seven. Yeah, if his male wa- fantasy futurism. Yeah, male fantasy futurism. <laughs> if his wives ever compared his videograms, Commander Norton thought with more amusement than concern, it would vo- involve him in a lot of extra work. Now he could make one long gram and dupe it, adding only brief personal messages and endearments before shooting the almost identical copies off to Mars and Earth. <laughs> That's the mass text. That's the mass. <laughs> yeah. He can group text his wives and he has multiple yeah. families. And also like they end up like sleeping with, with each other on the ship and stuff like that. So he's definitely dropping in like, oh, what if, you know, that kind of okay. thing. Yeah. Um, so, Gotta yeah. stick to the science. Yeah, stick to the science, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but, you know, like there's just like a lot of cool stuff in there. I also like how... He has, he also sometimes have like a historical perspective, like the Endeavor is the name of the ship that visits Rama. And he drops in like references that Commander Norton, who's in most ways the main character of the book, he, the the Endeavor, the spaceship that docks with Rama is actually, he goes into detail about how it's named after the HMS Endeavor, which was piloted by Lieutenant James Cook um, between Australia and New Zealand. And it's just sort of interesting, like you can you get an insight into stuff that like Arthur C. Clarke was inspired by, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's sort of countless references to little stuff like that. Um, and yeah, overall, just like an awesome book to just sit down. Like I was, um, you know, just commuting with this book and kind of like taking it everywhere with me. And, you know, it was just it it's an escape and it's also just like not a burden because you're never thinking like you are thinking and you're like, holy shit, like that would be cool if there was like this crazy thing, but he does a lot of the thinking for you and it's sort of just simple storytelling. And there's, there's not really, you know, I don't want it to sound like a bad thing, but you're not really like self reflecting or anything like that. You're just sort of like along for the ride. And and that's awesome because it just feels so effortless. Yeah, well, that's good with science fiction sometimes. It's like, okay, I it's impossible for me to relate to this because, you know, it's, it's a manufactured kind of like, um, right. experience. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the only thing left to I, say... I know that, like... What's, what's up? up? Like, I was going to was... say, two, 2001 was like that. Like, uh, it, that I blew through 2001. It was uh, really entertaining. Yeah, he's really readable. And, you know, yeah. the only thing left to say, too, is that... You know, we're all book nerds out there. And my edition of Ron, I was actually waiting to get Rendezvous with Rama for a really long time because I kept seeing uh, the the world and the series also continued, but under a different author with Arthur C. Clarke's like editing and blessing, basically. So he would give notes and edits, but another guy wrote the rest of the Rama books. Um, But I kept seeing those. So there's one called like Rama 2 and like another one that's like really popular. And um, eventually I went to 
McKay's Books, which is I went to the one outside of Nashville, which I sent you a picture from there, um, Mark, and it's basically like a massive library that you there's just so many books there. And um, I finally saw Rondetta with Rama. Yeah. And I finally saw it and I just, you know, I have the perfect yellowed paperback that just smells absolutely amazing. And uh, I was ready to pick it up every single time and just keep going with Rama. So um, nice. I would even any... continue to read the, the next few books because yeah. even though they're under a different person, Rama is just such a cool concept that I'm, I'm ready for more. Nice. Are there any, I was going to ask, are there any illustrations in it? There are no illustrations. Or like is the that... cover, does the cover have the cylindrical C or something? The cover is kind of cool. It's just like a silver cover. I'll put it on the Instagram and the Twitter. It's just like a silver cover, but there is sort of an interesting um, like sci-fi painting inside of a circle, appropriately inside of a circle um, here. So yeah, I mean, it's just awesome. I got back. I, I feel like I got back into science fiction. I like want to go and like read some more Robert Heinlein and some more Isaac Asimov just because like it's just so easy and it's just so cool. Like these guys were like so cool. Like, it, you know, he's he's a professional like person that you can kind of trust to give you some funky ideas and, and that's all you want or need from it. So wasn't there a really oddly shaped asteroid or comet or whatever last year that was like it was like cigar shaped yeah there's like a few, there's like yeah, a new one out like, there that's like a significant space object that's like sort of like yeah i think comet. people like maybe reference this book when they saw that there's been a few there's that. been a few actual um like nasa sightings for objects in deep space that people have either named rama or like attempted to name rama but then they went with a different name um, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, in people's minds when they discover things coming into the universe, yeah. <laughs> into the observable nice. universe. Oh, okay. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. It was really fun to read. So I highly recommend Arthur C. Clarke. He's, he's got some cool ideas. It's cool that he lived to see the year 2001. And then we're yes, probably very is. disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, I mean, that's all science fiction. Like in the year 2130, people are going to be like, oh, rendezvous with Rama is so stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that about sums it up, everybody. Thanks for listening again. Um, this has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Instagram, and Twitter at SBR the Podcast. You can also email us um, at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us some comments, suggestions, corrections, uh, whatever you're feeling, and uh, I'll see you next time. See you later.